This is the research behind musical abstracts. What is a musical abstract? Well, we challenge five researchers to work with songwriter Johnny Berliner and turn their research into song. For more, go to the What's On section of curiositycarnival.org. That if they'd done some feeding, they'd be in a better state of mind. We talk as if emotions were digestive. I'm Dr. Emily Taylor-Brown and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at St. Anne's College here at Oxford. My research is part of a larger project called the Diseases of Modern Life Project, based here at Oxford, um, which investigates how the Victorians experienced what they identified as the stresses and strains of modern living. Uh, And my research looks at gastrointestinal or digestive health in this period, um, how it's constructed across disciplines and in a diverse range of media. So I look at uh, scientific publications, medical textbooks, educational policy, but I also look at novels and plays and poems. And I'm interested in how the general public understood digestive health through these interdisciplinary means. So I'm interested in how gastrointestinal knowledge changes and takes on new meanings uh, as it moves between genres. So understandings of diet, digestion and food have historically informed and continue to inform uh, other ideas about things like gender and class and national identity. This is perhaps most obvious in the novelistic encounter, but also it's present in other non-fictional writings too. Who is eating, what they're eating, where they're eating, when they're eating and with whom are preoccupations of Victorian writers who worried about the rise of what they called modern meals. People were eating more, they were eating richer food, much of which was adulterated with unsavoury and sometimes dangerous things, so chalk, alum, but also arsenic in some cases too. So we think about um, our obsession with diet and its relationship to lifestyle as being a relatively new thing. Um, In recent years, we've seen the rise in a number of people um, identifying as vegan and vegetarian and celiac. We've seen diets like paleo, clean eating and the 5-2. But the Victorian period also witnessed this explosion in books being published that dealt with diet um, and its relationship to wider physical health. The most interesting thing uh, so far that I've discovered is that indigestion had a much broader meaning in the 19th century. Um, you could have mental indigestion as well as physical indigestion, and it really came to stand in for a disruption to bodily harmony. So you have things like literary dyspepsia, uh, which is a kind of indigestion thought to affect readers and writers of fiction. Uh, and you have the use of eating and digestion as a means of talking about other things. So in Dickens' Oliver Twist, when he asks his emblematic uh, question, which is really more of a statement. Please, sir, I want some more. What? Please, sir, I want some more. More? It's not just an expression of hunger. Uh, it's also Dickens speaking out against conditions of the poor and institutions like workhouses. And it's a recognition that alimentary distress is often not just a physical, but also a social and an emotional experience. And this is something that we recognise. We live in a society um, where digestive health and emotional health or feeling and eating are intimately connected. In 2003, the term hanger was coined, which means 
uh, being angry, especially um, irrationally angry as a result of being hungry. And this idea uh, drove the advertising campaign for Snickers in 2010. So everyone's probably familiar with their tagline, you're not you when you're hungry. But this has a much longer cultural history that we don't often engage with. And I think it's quite important that we do. In the 19th century, uh, digestive distress could have emotional symptoms and emotional distress could have digestive ones. Being charitable or mean-tempered was often attributed to dietary practices. So how Victorians uh, theorised gastrointestinal health might shed light on how we approach these interconnections between emotional and digestive health today um, and really help us to rethink uh, critically about how we talk about them. More broadly, the research takes into account recent claims that we are overhyping the microbiome. So these correlations being produced by microbiome studies um, are correlations. They're not necessarily cause and effect. We don't know that yet. So the research asks why this is such a powerful and such a popular idea, especially the medicinal or therapeutic interventions that microbiome studies offers, which is often dietary interventions. Why is this such a powerful um, idea with the public and with the media and also with scientists themselves? Ultimately, it asks what's at stake when we hype the microbiome and also what we might gain from hyping the microbiome. So the stomach uh, and digestion and the digestive processes have long been associated with the emotions. Um, we might think of 18th century understandings or more holistic understandings of the body, yellow bile, black bile, that kind of thing. So that was uh, has been a persistent kind of cultural idea in medicine as well. But in the 19th century, um, it's kind of reconfigured in relation to a more explicitly medical understanding of the body. And it's kind of fitted on top of the understanding of the body in terms of the nerves, the neurological system. Uh, and then the 19th century, the idea of digestion as being at the root of health takes on this really powerful cultural currency. So it's not just medical practitioners and scientists who are talking about it. Um, it really captures the popular imagination. Um, so in 1853, uh, Sidney Whitting uh, writes this book called Memoirs of a Stomach. Uh, it's an it narrative, and the main character is a stomach called Mr. Stomach, in which he, and he talks about um, his experience growing up as a stomach and his relationship with Mr. Brain, which he talks about as being mediated by a telegraph wire. Um, and this kind of metaphor was also used in medical textbooks. And I think it's really interesting that it's one that can cross genres. Um, so you have things like this, which are essentially what we would now think of as popular science um, or a blurring between popular science and literary fiction. But you also have this notion of a connection between digestion and the emotions in the 19th century novel. I mean, Dickens, it occurs in Dickens a lot because Dickens talks about eating a lot, talks about food a lot. Um, but he also talks about the relationship between feeling and eating. And that's a really prominent and recurring idea in his work and one which was also influenced by contemporary understandings in medicine. So I do a lot of reading in my research. I look at a lot of archival material, particularly things like um, patient narratives, patient experiences, letters between doctors, uh, medical notes produced by doctors. And I try and trace the ways in which this kind of information changes as it moves through, through genre. So when we look at scientific publications versus their popular iterations in journals aimed at a general audience and how those ideas then get taken up by novelists and by poets and take on new meanings in those new contexts.
So there's an argument for reading all texts as literary texts, as texts in their own right that do their own linguistic work. So you might read, although you're sensitive to generic conventions, for example, in the novel, you might read scientific prose um, in these literary terms and look at the kind of language being used and what work that language is doing and the reception that it might have from the readership. Um, I'm also interested in, in sort of tracing ideas um, so Dickens, for example, who produces a lot of novels throughout the 19th century, many of which deal with digestive illness in more explicit or implicit terms, also um, edited several periodicals. And I'm interested in the kinds of articles that would have crossed his desk as an editor, the sort of things he would have read or um, co-written and published in his journal. Um, so, for example, one of the things that was published in his journal, Household Words, um, was an article uh, was looking at digestion and the emotions and that it makes a contracted argument for the stomach as actually being the organ that's associated with emotions particularly love but that the reason the heart has become so emblematic in popular culture is because it's easier to rhyme heart than it is to rhyme stomach um so this is a <laughs> interesting to think about when you also analyze it alongside Dickens' treatment of the relationship between digestions and the emotions in his in his novels. Um, and one of the things I do look at is commercial advertisements and, and medical advertisements, and they're often very interesting because although on the one hand they're appropriating medical discourse in order to sell their product, they're also selling their product. So you have to take what they're saying with a pinch of salt, but you, you get these phrases, which is uh, where the title of the song comes from, the stomach is the monarch of humanity. The stomach was the monarch of the body, soul and intellect. The is always organ number two. That comes from um, uh, an investment for Holman's liver and ague pills which is marketed as a cure for indigestion. So there's this interesting cultural work being done in terms of the power dynamics of the body, the idea that the stomach might be the monarch, um, and you get all these kinds of metaphors that talk about the body as a society um, and, and analyse the role of the stomach within that society. So they make the body this kind of politicised space in which the brain or the stomach might be tyrant or monarchical leader, or in some ways, in more democratic terms, they might be working together to produce bodily health. And what ill health is, is a disruption to that internal harmony. And I think that's a particularly interesting model for the body that might fit seamlessly into um, 21st century ideas about the microbiome um, and dysbiosis. So I was really excited to work with Johnny because I've never written a song before um, and I thought it was a really interesting way of thinking about my research and communicating my research to a different audience. And one of the things that emerged quite early on as being surprisingly important to both of us was the genre of the song and the way that the genre could interact with the content and really give it something more. Um, and this, I'm particularly keen on this because this is also a tenet of my wider research, the ways in which genre influences how we perceive the content. And so we settled, after not very much discussion really, on swing music. And one of the reasons is because I like swing music and I listen to a lot of swing music. Uh, and when I'm listening to it, one of the things that really stood out to me is how often they talk about food. So if you listen to Dean Thomas or Cab Calloway, they are always talking about food. They're talking about what they're eating. They're talking about people coming over to their house and what they eat when they come over to their house. 
Um, so I thought that was a really nice parallel. Have a banana, Hannah. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it the gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house. Try a tomato plate too. And the second reason is that if you're listening to swing music, you're probably dancing to swing music. And if you're dancing to swing music, you're more often than not doing the Lindy Hop. Um, so the Lindy Hop is a partner dance that relies on balance and counterbalance, and it's lead and follow. But it's often taught as being more like a conversation. And I thought this really embodied the central idea of a lot of my research, the idea that there's this conversation between the stomach and the mind in the 19th century. This is how they thought of it. But that this conversation also had this kind of underlying power dynamics of whether or not the brain or the stomach was really in control of the body. As butterflies, fear can make you sick. Heartbreak often leads to ice cream, appetite loss, or gin and tonics. Cute babies, I could just eat them, and angry people find that if they'd done some feeding, they'd be in a better state of mind. We talk as if emotions were digestive. Victorians suggested this was actually true. The monarch of the body, soul, and intellect. Brain was always organ number two. In novels, poems, medicine, and social theorization, Victorians would write about this gut brain brain gut conversation. Whilst indigestion now is mainly due to food, Victorians got dyspepsia from imbalancing their mood. Tried novels are the stress of public transport. Bad melodies were gastric dynamite. Cause the stomach was the monarch of the body, soul, and intellect. An ocean that was never taken light. Their bowels would need protecting from the troubles in their heads Their senses could be jumbled up by the sort of food on which they fed In Dickens, Scrooge was met by Marley dead in chains But was it undigested beef that made him come back again? H.G. Wells thought stomach so inefficient His gutless Martians almost won the war Cause the stomach was the monarch of the body, soul, and intellect It's there when you look at the literature So Victorians saw the body as a kind of nation-state With a stomach for a capital and bacteria to populate So the Martians never beat us in Wells' famous tale Microscopic allies helped us humans tip the scale So microbiome studies ain't so modern Victorians linked microbes to our health and The stomach was the monarch of the body, soul and intellect That's what modern science seems to say as well The stomach is the monarch of the body, soul and reason Neglect